I do always appreciate it when anyone who's leading a prayer mentions me in the prayer. It does mean a lot to me, but I, I thought it was interesting listening to Robert tonight that he prayed specifically, thanks for the lesson I'm about to give. And that's potentially dangerous. You know, you haven't heard it yet. Uh, you might be saying a prayer, you know, thank, thanking the Lord that it's over once it's done. You never know how it's, how it's going to go. But uh, I, I do appreciate that. On November 4th, 1995, the Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, was assassinated by an Israeli student named Yigal Amir. A lot of you probably remember that event. I do. I was only 11 years old at the time. I remember it happening. In particular, I remember the funeral that followed. It was attended by uh, world leaders from virtually every nation imaginable. And at the time, I didn't know about Amir's motive. He was just a madman, a lunatic. And even if I had known his motive, I wouldn't have understood it the way that I do now. Rabin had signed the Oslo Accords, promoting peace with the Palestinians. For that, he shared the 1994 Nobel Peace Prize. He'd also signed a peace treaty with Jordan. And as a result, a number of traditional Jewish elements viewed him essentially as a traitor. He'd compromised their national identity, their heritage. The media typically reported on Amir as a law student, but he wasn't studying law in the Western sense. He was a student of Torah, of the Law of Moses. And at his trial, in his defense, he said that his action was in accordance with Jewish law. He was only doing what God wanted him to do. He was convicted, sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole, and here we are uh, two decades plus later, and yet he still never expressed any regret, any remorse for his actions because he's convicted that it was the right thing to do. The modern world is a very different place from the first century world in a lot of different ways. But zeal has endured. Yigal Amir was just drawing upon a deep stream of Jewish thought that was present in some circles going back to ancient times. He was a zealot. And in that regard, he's not any different from one of the twelve apostles. The only thing we know about the apostle Simon, not Simon Peter, the other Simon, is that he was a zealot. He's called Simon the Zealot in Luke chapter 6, verse 15. In Matthew and Mark's list, he's referred to as Simon the Canaanite or Simon the Canaanian. Some modern translations will put it that way to avoid confusion. And that's because we're not talking here about a man who was from the land of Canaan or someone who was a resident of the village of Cana in Galilee. This is a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word that means 
to be zealous. So it's just reinforcing that same idea. This was Simon's one defining characteristic. He was a political radical. He was a member of the sect or the party known as the Zealots. And to understand him, we really need to have an understanding of what that means. The first century Jewish historian Josephus said that there were four basic groups in Judaism in his day. Now, this list isn't exhaustive. There were other smaller groups. And even among these four groups, there were subdivisions. We know about different controversies and sects among the Pharisees, for example. But these four groups will give us an idea of the general lay of the land. And uh, most of us have probably heard of at least some of these four. Maybe we've heard of all of them. We encounter some of them in Scripture. First of all, there were the Pharisees. We all know the Pharisees. Their name means the separate ones or the pure ones. They were devoted to a fastidious interpretation of the law. They believed that everyone, because Israel was supposed to be a priestly people, that everyone should follow those specifications of purity and cleanliness that were laid out for priests. Because they were so meticulous, they also had an extensive body of oral law. Uh, Like what we looked at with the Day of Atonement this morning, all of those regulations that were added on to the specifics in Leviticus chapter 16. And the Pharisees attached the same weight to their interpretation and their application as they did to what was actually written down in the Old Testament. Uh, Then there was the Sadducees. We also encounter the Sadducees in Scripture. The Sadducees were the party of the wealthy priests and their friends in the aristocracy. These were the elites, the establishment, uh, the man. Religiously, they controlled the temple. Politically, they collaborated with the Romans because they were willing to do anything and everything to maintain their grip on power. Then there was a group called the Essenes. We don't read about them in the Bible, but you may have heard of them. They viewed the establishment as corrupt, much like the Pharisees did. But instead of staying there and and fighting for it and being sort of heroes to the common people, the Essenes withdrew. They formed their own separate community devoted to their own rigorous standards. Uh, A lot of you probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that community there at Qumran. Uh, Most scholars think that that's probably to be identified with the Essenes. Then we have the group that Josephus called the fourth philosophy, or the Zealots. The Zealots had a lot in common with the Pharisees. Just like the Pharisees, they were extremely rigorous about the law. But they went much further than the Pharisees did in a lot of their application. They were militant outlaws. The zealots hated the Romans, just like a lot of Jews did. And the goal of the zealots was to see the Romans overthrown. A lot of Jews wanted that too. But where they really differed is that where many groups, like most of the Pharisees, were content to wait expectantly for God to do that himself in his own good time, the zealots were determined to bring that about themselves. They were going to help God along however they could. 
They were looking for the Messiah to come and to lead them in establishing a new and powerful independent kingdom of Israel. He was going to return it to its ancient glory just like it was in the days of Solomon. And they tried everything they could to bring that about through violence, through terrorism. Anyone and everyone who stood in their way, Roman or even some of their fellow Jews, they were potential targets. The model for this sort of zeal, and even the name Zealot, goes back to a man named Phinehas. We read this story in Numbers chapter 25. The Israelites are just on the edge of the Promised Land. They're right there on the cusp, on the border. And they've entered into the territory of Moab. Now, they've just spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, so a lot of these Israelite men are more than happy to take some of these Moabite women as their girlfriends. Now, that meant, for one thing, obviously, they were betraying their families, their wives, their children. But beyond that, they were betraying God and His law. Not only literally in the sense that He forbade that sort of activity, but also mixing with these sort of women meant that they might be tempted to serve their gods and engage in some of their practices. Well, things got out of control and the people were absolutely uh, running wild. God sent a plague, but even that didn't seem to divert anything. And finally, it got so bad that one man actually took his Moabite girl and he took her into his tent. Right there in broad daylight, it was brazen in front of Moses, in front of everybody. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, so he's the son and the grandson of a high priest, Phinehas had had enough. He picked up a spear. He followed that man into his tent. He found him and the Moabite woman already in the act. And with one single thrust, he stabbed them both through, killed them right then and there. This was the defining moment of zeal. Numbers 25, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was zealous with my jealousy among them, so that he did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Phinehas was zealous. He stayed this plague. One of the Psalms even celebrates this. This is the 106th Psalm, verse number 30. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Phinehas's zeal was counted to him as righteousness, and it resulted in this covenant relationship, this unbreakable bond with God. That example inspired countless Jews. It inspired the Pharisees. It especially inspired the Zealots. It resonated all down through the centuries. It inspired the Maccabees in the second century B.C. when they rebelled against Antiochus Epiphanes rather than serving his pagan gods. It inspired a young Saul of Tarsus to go and to hound Christians to the death because he thought he was being zealous for God. That's the word he uses, and that's why he uses it. For the Zealot Party, as a political group specifically, their formation goes back to the year 6. A man named Judas of Galilee 
led a rebellion against a Roman census tax. They thought that paying tribute to any pagan king was tantamount to treason to God. And because a lot of Jews resented Roman domination, even if they weren't zealots themselves, they were all too eager to throw in their lot with him. And so Judas organized this rebellion. He went on a campaign of plunder and murder. He led a guerrilla-style campaign from his base in Galilee. Eventually, the Romans caught up with him. They captured him. They crucified him, the typical punishment for a rebel. They crucified his sons along with him. But this didn't wipe out the zealot movement. It just went underground, and it rears its head periodically throughout the first century. In the 50s of the first century, a group emerged from the zealots called the Sicarii. I think I've mentioned them in this series of lessons before. That's the dagger men. Uh, these guys would carry curved knives under their robes. And in the midst of crowds, particularly on feast days, they would go up in the crowd behind Romans or behind Jewish collaborators and they would stab them in the back between the ribs, kill them in one blow, and then they would just disappear, blending into the crowd. The zealots were known for going and burning Roman outposts and then retreating, disappearing into the hills. Josephus talks about the fact that uh, no sort of torture or punishment or pain was a deterrent to them. They were willing to face certain death. Their resolve was stern. The Romans could not stamp them out. It was the zealots who were primarily behind the Jewish rebellion that started in the year 66. Now, because of their fanaticism, and I just want to give you a, an idea of who these guys are, because of their fanaticism and the fact that they looked down on some Jews just as much as they did on the Romans, they ended up fighting among themselves too. And in fact, when the Roman general Titus had the city of Jerusalem surrounded, there were three discrete factions of zealots in the city fighting each other at the same time, in some cases literally to the death. One was in control of the lower city, one was in control of the temple mount, and one had control of the inner court of the temple. And just to give you an idea, the feast of the Passover took place during the siege. And those in control of that inner court threw open the gates so that others could come in and celebrate the Passover. And they were slaughtered. So there were only two factions of zealots after that. They were so fanatical that if anyone tried to surrender, if they tried to sneak out into the Roman lines, they would kill them themselves rather than let them surrender. And so when Titus saw all of that and he saw this attitude, he realized that there was no reasoning with this, these people. And so when the siege was broken, he destroyed the city, he destroyed the temple. Probably their most notable episode, the, the greatest example of this uh, fanaticism, this zeal, occurred at Masada. Some of you have probably heard of this story. Jerusalem fell in the year 70, but just because the city was taken didn't mean that all elements of the rebellion were wiped out. There were still pockets of resistance all throughout Judea and Galilee, and it took them three or four years to clean all of that up. Well, Masada was a fortress in the Judean hill country, and it was actually controlled by a grandson of Judas the Galilean, a fellow named Eleazar. This is the last holdout. The Romans had it surrounded, and it became clear that they weren't going to survive. But they were determined to never submit to the Romans. 
And so they hatched a plan. Because of this nature of this war and because they were under siege, a lot of these fighters had brought their families, their wives and their children, into the fortress. Each man lovingly embraced his wife and his children, and then they slaughtered them. And then they drew lots. Ten men were chosen because, you see, suicide was viewed as an unpardonable sin for Jews. These ten men were chosen to willingly kill all the rest of the men. And then those ten men drew lots again, and one of them killed the other nine. And then because he drew the short straw, as it were, he was the only one to kill himself. Before they did that, Eleazar had had them burn all of their supplies except for their food. So it would make it very clear to the Romans that this was an act of defiance. They weren't doing it because their supplies were exhausted. When the Romans came into the fortress the next day, they had prepared for battle, and then there's this eerie quiet. They were stunned. They didn't know what was going on. And Josephus writes that it even horrified them. They'd never seen anything like this. Almost a thousand Jews dead. Only two women and five children survived, and that's how we have the account. They'd hidden themselves away. Now, if you're like me, you find this sort of background information just interesting for its own sake, and I think it's illuminating. It helps us to know about the background to the New Testament. But tonight we're talking about Simon the Zealot, and here's my point. This is the type of man that Jesus chose to be one of his apostles. He's a lunatic. He's a terrorist. He is a religious fanatic. We might understand why Simon would follow Jesus. You know, in the beginning, he might have viewed Jesus as that deliverer they're looking for. He's the one that's going to lead them to victory. He's going to overthrow the Romans in this glorious revolution, and he's going to establish his kingdom. I get that. Why in the world would Jesus choose a man like this to follow him? And I think the answer comes down to the fact that above all else, Simon was passionately devoted to serving God. Now, it was misguided, obviously, very misguided. It needed to be redirected. It needed to be channeled in the proper way. But that sort of passion was precisely what Jesus was looking for in people that he called to follow him. He wanted that type of passion directed toward the kingdom of God. He wanted men who had passionate hearts for serving God. He wanted a man who had that sort of fire in his bones. Jesus could take that raw material. You know, you, you can't just manufacture that sort of zeal. But he could take that raw material, just like he took the raw material with the other apostles, and, and mold that and shape it and direct it in the right way. The best example of that we have is Simon's relationship with the apostle Matthew. Remember, Matthew's a tax collector. Matthew's exactly the type of guy that, prior to knowing Jesus, Simon would have been all too happy to kill himself. And yet, they worked together side by side for years, serving the same Lord, spreading the same gospel. The world is 
fine. They tolerate, in some cases they even celebrate. If we're passionate about any number of things, you can be passionate about politics. You can think that it's absolutely critical that your party, whichever one it is, wins this next election. I've read and I've heard some people treating these 2018 midterms almost as if they have apocalyptic significance, that this is going to determine the direction of our country. And so you can invest it with that same sort of meaning and you can go out and you can, you can donate your time, you can donate your money, uh, you can volunteer, you can knock doors and canvas anything you want. You can be passionate about politics and that's not only okay, that's great. That means you're getting involved in the process. You can be passionate about sports. You can buy season tickets to follow the team of your choice. You can even go and follow them on road trips all across the United States. You can invest literally thousands of dollars in buying tickets and in all of the uh, gear that goes along with this. And well, you know, that may not be my thing, but that's awesome. You're a fan, you're devoted, that's cool. You can be passionate about your country. You can put up an American flag in your front yard. We see them all around here in Liberty all the time because they're put up at particular times of the year. And you can go and attend any sort of celebration, 4th of July, Memorial Day, Veterans Day. You can uh, sing the national anthem at sporting events. You can talk about how you support our troops. And people say, that's great. You're patriotic. You can be passionate about your job. You can be passionate about your hobbies. You can be passionate about your family. But you can't be passionate about serving God. That's weird. That's not politically correct in some cases. I can attend every single Astros home game, but if I attend church services every week, let alone multiple times every week, what's wrong with that guy? I can attend political rallies. That's considered great, but if I go to church services, if I have a Bible study, it's a little off. I can go and knock doors to try to stump for political candidates, but if I try to talk to people about Jesus, and heaven forbid that I go and actually knock on doors to try to talk to people about Jesus. We can be passionate about anything else, but if, I, if I'm passionate about serving God, and if I devote all of my time and my energy and my talents to serving God, what do people say? The guy's a fanatic. He's a nutcase. There's something wrong with him. You can be passionate about anything you want in this country, but you can't get too excited about serving God. What if we did? What if we really were on fire for serving God? What if we were as passionate about the Lord as we are about politics? What if we were as passionate about following Jesus as we are about following the Astros? Jesus wants zealots for his cause. People who are 100% completely, totally sold out for him. It's pastime for us to become passionate about serving Jesus Christ. That's why he called a man like Simon. 
Jesus wants people like Simon to serve him. He wants us to be like Simon. Throughout Scripture, we're told to seek God passionately. We're told to love God passionately with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're told to serve God passionately. We're told to trust Him passionately. So it's astounding that Jesus, in one sense, would choose a man like Simon to be His apostle. But on the other hand, He's a man of fierce loyalty, of amazing passion, of courage, of faith, of zeal. And when properly channeled, that same zeal that he once exhibited for Israel would make him a dynamic servant of Jesus Christ. Do we have that same zeal, that same passion? I think if we're all honest, we know the answer to that's no. Why not? If there's some impediment between you and God, something that you need to make right, some sin that you need to repent of so that you can have that passion, if you have any need at all this evening, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.